Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Intelligence Download. I'm your host, Brad Grantham. Today we're going to talk about the Thin Crime Threat Intelligence Light Report developed by our BAE Systems Futures team. This report aims to help financial institutions in the UK better understand the transactional profiles that could indicate a human trafficking for labor exploitation risk. By understanding the behaviors of victims involved in this, the industry can better detect and disrupt this type of criminal activity. This type of trafficking can take place at a massive scale, happen right before our eyes, and can take place in industries we all benefit directly from, like the food supply chain. Joining us today is Nicola Eschenberg. She is the FTS Venture Lead for our Futures team here at BA Systems Applied Intelligence. Nicola, thank you for joining us. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So what would you say the scale of this problem is? Can you quantify that for us? I can, and it's it's a lot bigger than you might think, given, I think, modern sl slavery, tends, we tend to think of having been, um, you know, centuries ago, we I think pre-United States times, but it's very much a problem here and now. Their modern slavery, human trafficking are highly lucrative and they're really intertwined businesses. And that, I think that's a key thing, think of them as businesses. So they generate illicit profits of at least $150 billion a year for traffickers. And we're looking at at least 40.3 million people trapped worldwide. And no, obviously here today we're here to talk about enforced labor and Global estimates are 2.5 million of those today. Now, financial gain is the main incentive for most of the organized crime groups, or OCGs, that perpetrate this type of crime. And that's exactly why those committing these human trafficking offenses really do act more like businesses than many criminal enterprises. And again, you might think, well, that's, that's fine. That happens some, elsewhere in the, in the world. This isn't something that would happen in the UK, is it? I mean, we're a civilized country, aren't we? And well, you'd be surprised. So last year, between July and September, so that's one quarter in 2020, there was over 2,500 potential victims of human trafficking. And they were put forward to the National Referral Mechanism. And of that, roughly a quarter to a third were related to forced labor. So, you know, th these are people who need support if they're going to be able to escape the captors. Um, and these these numbers are only the people who have been surfaced through the work of charities, the likes mm. of um, the likes of the Salvation Army, Samaritans, the police, all these frontline services. We don't know how many more victims there are that go undetected. Would you say that this problem has increased over time? I think absolutely. Partly, it, obviously, you, you could say that it might be a question of we're able to track this kind of thing better. But I think... You know, especially on the pandemic, times are getting harder, money's harder. People get desperate, and that's that's where this particular MO of human trafficking really comes to the fore. These are people that, you know, they're vulnerable. They've they're desperate for jobs. They get promised a good life if they will take a new job pronto in another country, and they don't have any other opportunities. So for these people that are going to get tra trafficked and victimised, they think that they've got a brilliant opportunity out of them. They, they're keen to support their families back home. They're keen to, to um, you know, create a life for themselves. Out of sight, out of mind, it's a phrase that's often used, and whether it's the United States, the UK, or wherever you may be in the world, human trafficking is not part of a you know, daily conversation in our news uh, with our friends. 
you know, how surprised would people be to see this data that was presented to them out of the blue? Do you think they'd be shocked? I think they would. I mean, I consider myself to be fairly well-read, um, well-informed person. I had no idea this was going on under our noses. And again, you know, I, I, as you might be able to tell from the accent, I come from Zimbabwe. So um, that's we I personally probably would have expected to see this kind of labour going on. And, you, of course, you hear about the woman being forced in Hong Kong to labour for little to no money. But you, I just didn't expect this to happen in the UK. As you say, it's it's because it's our society, you don't think about it, but it's happening here and now. And that's where it becomes critical to understand how it's happening so we can actually identify it and, and stop it, hopefully. What is the relevance for financial institutions, so banks and others, where this money is flowing through? Why... Why should they care, and why should we as customers care what they're doing to monitor these situations? I think that's a great question, and, and it's a multifaceted one, actually. So from a purely legal standpoint, the funds generated by human trafficking are considered proceeds of crime. So any bank handling this money is facilitating money laundering. So in the particular scenario that we covered in the Light Report, the OCGs are using retail bank accounts, opening their victims' names to launder money and, and to obfuscate their involvement. So for a bank, they need to avoid violating anti-money laundering or AML um, regulations and also the combating of financing of terrorism regulations. So if, if those banks can't detect the links between those victim accounts and the perpetrators, um, odds are they're going to be violating those AML regulations and the CTF regulations and they're going to be probably at risk of a huge fine. Now, that's that's the um, big legal ramification. Um, but it's not just the legal piece. So there's there's a piece around um, operating in the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And I think we're seeing a, a groundswell of support from the consumer towards really expecting their suppliers, their banks, their um, car manufacturers, their, their supermarkets, whoever it might be, there's really an expectation of them to act in ethical and moral ways. So for me personally, if I knew that my bank wasn't doing their best to try and stop this kind of activity, to identify it and report it, I would change my bank. And I, I don't think I'm the only one that would think this way. So there's also, it's not just a, a corporate social responsibility piece. I think it's also a practical piece, understanding what today's consumers are looking for, what they want, and actually being able to deliver on that. So it's, as I said, it's, it's sort of the two sides of the coin. One is doing your legal obligations, and the other side is actually understanding your own customer, understanding what they want, and delivering on that. And from what we're seeing, it's very much consumers are expecting their banks to care about these things. In this report, we identified, or the Futures team identified, the kind of eight stages to understand how human trafficking works, and you kind of broke this down for us. Can you kind of walk us through that process? Of course. So the one thing we've identified through all this research that we've done is it's really difficult to just to profile a victim or to profile a perpetrator. 
the the ages vary, the gender varies, the ethnicity varies. So what we've what we believe is that it's very important to actually understand the activity, and that's what this framework is for. So to a degree, it's almost irrelevant. Um, it's almost irrelevant what the actor in, in question looks like because we know what they're doing. So I'll talk you through this briefly. So we've got, as we said, the eight stages. So that starts off with recruitment. So in this particular case, we've got perpetrators that perpetrators will travel to recruit victims outside of the UK. So you know we might be looking at Albania or Romania or Slovakia. Um, and that perpetrator coerces the victim to agree to relocate. The next stage we see is relocation. So that's where victims are transported to the UK and they moved into OCG controlled housing. So when we say housing, you know, we're, we're talking ramshackle places, eight to 15 people living in a, in a flat or a house that probably doesn't have heating. It's not nice, to put it mildly. The next step we're looking at, stage three, is the setup. So in this particular scenario, this is where victims are forced to open bank accounts. Um, perpetrators will arrange work for the victims through a recruitment agency, and then the perpetrators apply for benefits in the victim's name. So I think the important thing to highlight here is in, in the eyes of the bank and the eyes of the law, this might all look perfectly legitimate. Again, it's very much about being able to pull these nuances together. So stage four is exploitation. Um, clues in the name, the victims are made to work long hours. And we've really unpicked this through uh, working with West Midlands Police in the Operation Fort case study. And that was really a landmark modern slavery piece. So I'd certainly advise having a read of that if you're if something you're not familiar with. At the fifth stage, we've got um, proceeds. So this is the placement. So victims' wages get paid into their accounts. Victims receive benefit payments into their accounts. So this is all the money now flowing into the system. We then move on into layering. And this is sort of the sixth stage. And at this point, um, the perpetrators might sell that account on to other criminals for use in other criminality. So we're thinking very much of this as these accounts are a, are a funnel for activity. It very much creates a network. So what might start off as one account um, with one salary going into it may land up being one account with five salaries coming in, some dodgy benefits, probably some child, child benefits at a minimum, and um, quite possibly some money mulling or other money laundering activities. So, you know, these are run like businesses. The OCGs are interested in profit for anything else. So if they can see an opportunity to make the most of these accounts, they're going to do that. And then the seventh stage is integration. So this is where the perpetrator will withdraw the victim's wages and cash, and the perpetrator will use those victim accounts to pay for some of their own expenses. So I think that's the key thing to understand at this point is this cash coming into these accounts. The victims don't have any control over their accounts. It's completely controlled by the perpetrator. They might be given some cash to keep um, body and soul and skin together and alive, possibly to send some money back if they're lucky. But pretty much all of their money that's earned goes to the perpetrator. And then finally, the eighth stage. Um, probably fairly obviously is termination um, and this is where we'll, a bank would see the perpetrators leave an account dormant and I think the last thing for me to highlight here is there is a lot more detail that goes on here there'll be social indicators 
there'll be um, travel indicators. These aren't things that a bank are going to see. So we very much focused on what are the financial transaction indicators that a bank can expect to see. And it, this needs to be realistic. So if a bank's not going to have access to this data, there's little point in us highlighting it as an indicator to be thinking about. So let me take a step back to the setup where victims are being forced to open bank accounts and then also on the tail end, the termination, where they leave these accounts dormant. When they are setting up these accounts, is there anything that has changed in the past couple of years that might be a red flag for the bank or institution when somebody is opening up a bank account from, you know, they come from a specific country like, you know, we might need to keep an eye on this. And then likewise with termination, if an account is dormant for X period of time, are those red flags that pop up to these institutions? That's a good question. So on the setup side with the victims being forced to open bank accounts, what we've seen is frequently the, there'll be a, a common address on the bank accounts. So realistically, you wouldn't probably have a bank account with the same sort of five bank accounts with the same address. Typically, you would see if it's opened in person, the victim will be accompanied by somebody somebody who's acting as a quote-unquote interpreter. Maybe they, they might be an actual interpreter. Otherwise, it's just somebody who's keeping control of things. And really, at this point, it's, it's really up to the frontline staff in the bank to actually go, hang on, this looks a bit odd. But it's, again, it, it comes back to those nuances of understanding this address should be flagged because it's come up five or six times recently. Or it's about this person looks, and sometimes it's that simple, this person looks a bit stressed or unhappy. Um, so really using, in a sense, all of your senses as frontline staff to actually go, this looks a bit odd. Um, now, obviously, there are banks where um, accounts can be opened up remotely. And that really means that know your customer KYC due diligence becomes incredibly important. And I think the technology is evolving there all the time. So, but that's really the banks have to focus on making sure that it feels right and it feels legitimate. And then to, to your question on the termination piece, um, to the best of my knowledge, typically a bank's not going to notice for quite a long time that an account isn't being used. And that account's only likely to get, be left dormant if the victim runs away, escapes. Um, all the OCG itself gets shut down. Otherwise, that that account will continue to get mined. So I think by the, at the point that an account's dormant, that's probably too late. You want to be trying to catch this further up if you can. Otherwise, it's more a piece of retrospective detection work, I think. One of the things that I found fascinating about this report was the age and um, the victims of uh, the human trafficking uh, labor exploitation. And not just that, but also the age of the perpetrators as well. You know, I think when we talk about human trafficking in general, um, you know, you tend to think of younger people who are um, fall into that trap. But this report showed us something a little bit different. Can you kind of walk us through the victims and the perpetrators and kind of the profiles that you created around this? Of course. So, as you said, when you think of human trafficking, you typically are likely to have a certain um, 
picture in your head. But actually, with this particular type of crime, it affects any people of any working age. There could be any ethnicity, any gender. And that really makes profiling a challenge in this particular MO. But what's interesting is that groups of victims and perpetrators are often from single or closely related national or ethnic groups. So whilst different, or building on that actually, different profiles of victim and perpetrator are actually more commonly associated with the specific MO. So there might be a specific um, nationality that tends to focus on, for argument's sake, the canning industry versus the shipping industry versus cleaning houses. So in this particular MO, we, we found that it was a lot easier for the OCG if the victims could legitimately work in the UK. So actually that meant logically that poorer countries in the EU were common sources. The other thing we found at the end is that, and again, this would seem fairly logical. Most of these things are logical if you actually stop to think. Mostly we just don't stop to think. Um, <laughs> the victim's likely to be a vulnerable person in a difficult financial position. So that's, that's a high level picture. Now, if we look at a victim of HTLE, human trafficking for labor exploitation, um, it's more likely to be male, but it does depend on the target industry. So, you know, if we look at Operation Fort, that was mostly men, and that was because it was hard physical labor. They generally aged between 17 and 60. So that's a huge age range. Um, and these are really people who are in dire straits and they, they need some way to support their families. So we're looking at probably Albanians, British, Hungarian, Irish, Lithuanian, Polish, Romanian, Slovakian. Those are the top um, nationalities that we saw coming out. Isn't to say that there aren't other nationalities that will be involved, but those are the ones that came up most commonly in our research. And layering over that, um, was the reason that why they were vulnerable. And these typically came down to a number of factors, which included homelessness, substance abuse, fleeing law enforcement, or just out of prison. Mm. And what, to me, what's really interesting there is these are people who aren't necessarily going to have a vast amount of trust in the police. Right. You know, these are people who will be in, likely be incredibly defensive, um, they're not going to go to the police or charity or anything else for help because whatever they do have, they might they might fear being locked up again or having what they have managed to scrounge together being taken away from them. So that's just another area of vulnerability that these OCGs are able to play on. And in terms of the sort of day-to-day -day actions and motivations, because obviously this is the kind of detail that we need to understand if we really want to simulate this activity and look for it in financial transactions. Their day-to-day -day existence is really limited by their economic status. They don't have access to ID documents, so we're not going to see anybody here popping over to France, obviously pre-pandemic times, popping over to France for a holiday or popping over to Ireland or, you know, pick your Right, they're going to be staying in their local area. Yeah, they are not going to leave probably a four-mile radius, possibly, possibly bigger, but you, you mm. get the gist. Um, so they're going to be staying in the local area and they will pay for everything in cash. So again, that's unusual, especially in today's day and age where pretty much everything's contactless. They're going to be given a stipend out of the money that they've earned, that will be in cash, and that's what they live off of. 
So again, it's taking that step back and asking yourself as a bank, does this make sense? Is it normal behavior? So I guess the, the biggest question in all this, this is fantastic data uh, that we've kind of uncovered and, and, and gone through in this report. But the biggest question is, where do we go from here? Where do we take this data and how do we improve going forward? I think that's, that's the million dollar question. And for me, the biggest challenge that we face at the moment as an industry is the dichotomy of thinking and approach that's going on. When I say a dichotomy of thinking, we've got banks tasked by regulators to look for evidence of money laundering. And yes, that gets broken down into predicate offences, but ultimately they're looking for evidence of money laundering. On the flip side, police are looking for evidence of criminal activity. Given that, it's not particularly hard to see that any filed suspicious activity reports or SARS are unlikely to add that much value to the police because effectively they're pulling, pulling different information and they're pointing in a completely different direction than the police are looking at. So if we really want to disrupt that criminal activity, we need the two to be working in harmony. So as an industry, we need to think about what our $12 billion in compliance is actually achieving, other than the tick in the box. We've got, what are all these rules really looking for? Are they looking for evidence of somebody being abused, somebody being victimized? Or are they just looking for someone who withdraws the maximum amount from the ATM both sides of midnight as a once-off? We really need to think about that bigger picture. and We need to understand the criminal mind and thinking. And yes, we won't stop all of it, but if we can understand the approach and we can test whether or not we're picking up that, that activity, we should at least be able to raise that bar and make it harder for the OCGs to operate. Nicola, thank you so much for joining us today on the Intelligence Download. Absolutely my pleasure. It's been, um, I'm really enthusiastic about this. I think we can make a big difference and I really appreciate the chance to talk about it. Nicola Eschenberg is the FTS Venture Lead for the Futures Team at BA Systems Applied Intelligence. And thank you for joining as well. And uh, make sure you subscribe to the Intelligence Download wherever you get your favorite podcast apps. And we will see you on the next podcast. Thanks so much.